Good morning, ECC. It is uh, good to be with you here this morning. As Pastor Aubrey said, my name is Sam uh, Parkinson. My family and I have lived here and uh, we've been members here at ECC for just over a year. Actually, we just passed our anniversary uh, last month while we were in the United States. And uh, it's a little um, surreal to, to have passed a, a year here, but we're very grateful uh, for our new home. And uh, it's been a great first year in no small part due to uh, this beloved congregation of ours, ECC. Uh, Pastor Aubrey gave a great uh, commercial for our Foundations Year program, which saves me a little bit of time, and I can get straight into the Word. But yes, I, I am uh, grateful to, to serve at the Gulf Theological Seminary, and uh, it's been a, a, a great joy to teach uh, brothers and sisters like yourself to be biblically and theologically literate, uh, to build up the church in various ways. And so, um, yeah, I, I would uh, love to, to teach you. And so if you are interested in uh, formal theological uh, education, uh, as I like to call it, formal discipleship, then uh, there is still time to sign up for uh, Foundations Year this class. Many of you have availed yourself to Foundations Year, and uh, uh, many of you are actually uh, joining us this, this uh, fall. And so I'm excited to uh, get started. Uh, well, I, I said it's a joy to be back here, and I really do mean that. Uh, I had the privilege of preaching at uh, several churches in the United States while we were there uh, this past summer. I love preaching God's Word, and yet there's nothing like uh, preaching God's Word to your own church, uh, to a congregation of brothers and sisters that you have covenanted with. And so I'm grateful for the pastors for extending the invitation uh, to preach to you, and uh, I'm glad to do it. So please turn in your Bibles, if you haven't, to Psalm 55. That's where we'll be here this morning, Psalm 55. And before we look at this passage in particular, I'd like to, to take just a few minutes to give a brief uh, defense, a brief justification for a sermon series like this one, a series uh, dedicated simply to expositing nine consecutive sermons, uh, nine consecutive psalms of lament. Now, some of you, I, I understand, may feel uh, odd that... I should even feel the need to justify a sermon series like this. Maybe uh, this sermon series has been pure oxygen for you. Um, I know some of you uh, may come from church backgrounds where uh, you feel like you have to be happy all the time. There's no room for lament. There's no room for sorrow. And so uh, uh, having the, the opportunity and the um, permission, so to speak, to actually lament and cry out to God has been uh, refreshing for you. And maybe you happen to find yourself in a season uh, where you are overwhelmed and uh, every day is just, you feel the, the need to pour out lamentation and, uh, and prayers of sorrow to God. And so, again, being given the permission to do so in a, in a congregational setting has been uh, medicine for your soul. And uh, it's been medicine to, to have other church members, so to speak, lament with you. And so if that's you... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that the sermon series has been uh, beneficial for you, and I trust that the next uh, few sermons will be just as edifying as uh, the first several ones have. But I wonder if in a group this large, there are at least some Christians who may be eager, if you had to be honest, uh, for this sermon series to be over. Uh, maybe you're thinking, okay, one or two sermons expositing psalms of lament. I understand that a little bit, but this is just getting exhausting. <laughs> this is depressing. Is there no room for, for joy in the Lord? Is there no room for celebration? And 
I have to say, I can sympathize with that. I, I've listened to all of these sermons, and it's not lost on me that I uh, have the responsibility to bring yet another sermon on yet another heavy psalm of lament. And so I can sympathize with that. In fact, when I was a pastor in the United States, one of my responsibilities was uh, for arranging the, the liturgy, the songs and the scriptures and, and things like that. And a, uh, a criticism that I, I, didn't, I, I uh, received a couple of times was that the songs that I chose were too sad, uh, that they were too heavy. And so our church in the, in the United States, our previous church, just like ECC, uh, had become accustomed to singing uh, weighty songs of lament. And while I won't pretend that I always struck the perfect balance, my uh, response to those criticisms whenever I would receive them is the same encouragement that I offer to you who may be eager for this sermon series to be over. My response was this. Remember your brothers and sisters in Christ. Put yourselves momentarily in the shoes of that first group of Christians that I addressed this morning, of your brothers and sisters in Christ who barely made it through the doors uh, this morning, who can barely lift their heads because the season of sorrow that they are experiencing right now is so overwhelming. And there are many of those seasons uh, represented in this room, uh, either because of tragic loss, perhaps, or of uh, illness of some sort, uh, or maybe even as the consequence uh, to, to our own sin, and we experience seasons of sorrow and lament. Or, like in today's passage, uh, persecution or the, consequ uh, uh, the, the uh, consequences of personal betrayal, somebody very close uh, betraying you. Whatever it is, there, there is a lot of sorrow in a, in a group this large. And so uh, the encouragement is to put yourselves in the shoes of your brothers and sisters in Christ who can barely sing because their throat is caught up with cries of lament. And the point is, you may not be experiencing uh, a moment where you need another sermon on a psalm of lament, but they do. There are brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room that need another sermon on another psalm of lament. And when you learn to weep with those who weep, when you learn to rejoice with those who rejoice, when your heart is knit together in love with those who are suffering, then their consolation from a sermon, from a, from a psalm like this, can turn a downer of a sermon into a tremendous blessing for you. And so that's the encouragement for our hearts to be knit together in love so that the relief to lament for one member becomes a consolation and a solace for all of us. Because if one member suffers, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Also, while you may not be experiencing a season of sorrow and overwhelming grief right now, the fact that you live in this world, a fallen world, a world that groans for restoration, means that eventually you will. And so that means that a sermon series like this can, uh, can be used by God to prepare you for uh, seasons, to endure seasons of hardship that you will face in the future. All that to say... I'm confident that the Lord intends for us not merely to get through the next uh, three sermons, but uh, to receive them gratefully and their teaching as a gift of divine grace. God still has much to uh, teach us in these next few weeks. 
And so uh, with that, let's look at this passage in Psalm 55 this morning. And before we do, uh, I'll invite you to pray with me once more. A triune God, we thank you for another Lord's Day to gather uh, with your saints to worship you. It is the great privilege of our lives to come into your presence uh, with the assembly of the godly to worship you. And so we thank you for that. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would administer comfort uh, to those that are in seasons of sorrow that do need a sermon series like this one, and I pray that you extend uh, sympathy and uh, mutual love for those of us who are not experiencing seasons of sorrow so that we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Lord, there are too many needs in this congregation for a mere man-written sermon to address all of them, but you, O Holy Spirit, can do that. You can... Uh, Take the five loaves and two fish of a sermon that I've prepared this week, and you can multiply them in ways that we can scarcely imagine. So we ask that you do that. Would you water the hearts of those who hear your word so that seeds sown in weakness may be raised in power? We ask that the meditations, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts can be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all of this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 55, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling have come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Here David begins his prayer by situating the sadness of his heart in the context of his oppression. Now, there's always a question about what is the exact context of a a psalm like this one, and uh, people have been divided over uh, what is the precise context of David's uh, suffering, if you look at his life and First and Second Samuel or First uh, Chronicles, you can see that there's a lot of opportunities uh, for oppression. There's a lot of seasons of hardship that David could be uh, writing about. But I think there's good uh, biblical warrant for us to conclude that this Paul is uh, or uh, David is most likely talking about Saul in this uh, in this psalm. And uh, that's in part because of the psalms that are surrounding it. So if you look at the introductions of the other psalms that are surrounding this one, you can see that this is a cluster of psalms that are all relating to while the season of David's life while he was on the run from Saul. So this is when David was anointed to be king, before he actually became king, when Saul was still king, and Saul had turned on him. And so Saul is the betrayer that he's writing about here. Uh, Saul, the king that he has devoted his life to, and he is on the run from. And so David is exhausted. He feels as if uh, at any moment he is going to fall prey into some trap that Saul has laid for him. He's on the run. And in this context, when David is on the run from Saul, constantly looking over his shoulder and fearing for his life, he expresses to God his utter exhaustion. He feels as though there's no relief from the turmoil in his own soul in light of his situation. And so, 
And this psalm, as in all of the other psalms we've read about in this series, he pours his heart out in sincere and honest prayer to God. He says, I'm restless. I moan. My heart is in anguish within me. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I wonder if you have ever felt this way. If you've ever been in the kind of season where all you want to do is just disappear, to be removed from the situation that causes such heartache. Just wish I could snap my fingers and it all go away. Again, we learn from these Psalms that when we find ourselves in that kind of season, God does not at all begrudge our complaints. He wants for us to cry out to Him and to let Him know how we are feeling. He wants to hear the vexation of our souls. And so if we're feeling like we have nothing left to give, if we're feeling utter exhaustion, if we feel this deep soulish sense of divine absence, this feeling that God has abandoned us, God does not want us to pretend as though our faith were unshaken. He doesn't want for us to pretend that. He isn't fooled by such a fake posture of confidence anyway. It's not like if we just pretend like we're not feeling that way that he could somehow be fooled by that. He knows what we're feeling. So he wants for us to express how we are feeling at the emotional level. He wants our sincere and honest complaints. Now, that's been the case for all of the psalms that we've read in this series. But this psalm has a couple of surprising turns. And this is one of them. So if you look down with me at verse 9, this is where this psalm takes kind of an odd turn. He says, Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. midst oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. What on earth is David talking about here? Right? He was just talking about people that were his enemies that were oppressing him, and now he's talking about a whole city? What is this city that he's talking about? Well, I think we get a hint from verse 9. Where else do we read about God destroying a city by dividing its tongues? (laughs) You see, David is not talking about Jerusalem. He's not talking about Gath. He's not talking about any city that he could walk to and observe with his eyes. He's talking about a city that has ceased to exist A long time ago, before David writes this, he's talking about Babel, the Babel, the ancient Babel in the city, uh, in in the book of Genesis that we read about in Genesis chapter 11. Why? Why would David bring up Babel in this context? Seems very odd. Well, I think we can can understand it when we look at their sin. What what is the sin of Babel? The sin of Babel was prideful disregard of God's intention. God told humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion of the earth so that his image could be multiplied over the face of this globe for his glory. I mean, that's what we are as image bearers. We are pictures of his glory. So he wants to fill the earth with people to glorify himself. And what do the people of Babel do? They do the opposite. They disregard God's command, and they decide instead of uh, trying to bring glory to God by taking dominion of the earth, they try to build a name for themselves. And so they build this tower to heaven to uh, pridefully sort of uh, set themselves up on display. They, they disregard God's plan for humanity, and they, 
come up with their own plan. And so, because of the wickedness of this city and their prideful obstinance, God divides their tongues and he forces them to abandon their project. God uh, frustrates their plans. And when we look at the, the situation of David and his relationship with Saul in 1 Samuel, for example, we see that, that God is communicating to Saul over and over again, providentially, through narrow escapes and opportunities for David to take Saul's life that he doesn't seize upon, we see over and over again that God is communicating clearly to Saul, David is my anointed. Stop trying to kill him. <laughs> you will not destroy him. He is my anointed. And like a, like a dog with a, with a bone in its jaws, Saul will not give up his crusade for David. And so David is feeling like the waters are rising, like he's about to drown, and he's asking for God to do to Saul's plan what God had done to Babel's plans. Divide hit their tongues, frustrate their plans, don't let uh, Saul's plot succeed. And he's recognizing that the only way for Saul to, to not succeed in his crusade to try to kill David, the only way for that to happen is for God to intervene miraculously in the same way that he intervened miraculously with Babel. And so David had, had stored up, uh, treasured up in his heart stories of the scriptures, and they take on the, the shape of his prayer request as he's praying. David is desperate, and he's asking for God to frustrate Saul's plans just like he frustrated Babel's plans. Now, another surprising turn uh, takes place here in, this, uh, in verse 12 of this psalm. So look with me now at verse 12. David says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Go ahead and skip with me down to verse 20. He says, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Here David switches. He goes from describing his oppressor to God in the third person. So he's saying, God, this person is coming up against me. He switches from describing the oppressor to God in the third person to addressing the person in the second person. Now, this is, this is very striking. He, it, David does this in, a, in sort of a, a, uh, a clunky, grammatically clunky kind of way. There's no warning he just switches, and it's as if, as David is praying, as he's complaining about this person, he has this person's face and his mind's eye, and he begins to address that person. So he's saying, God, this person is not just an enemy. It's not just a stranger. I can handle that. But it's, and then with Saul's face in his mind, he says, it's you, it's you, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Saying we worshiped together. We prayed together. We, if, if this was in the 21st century or if this was a Christian context, we evangelized together. I wonder if you've ever felt this kind of betrayal. The betrayal of someone so close 
that you can't even pray about them without imagining talking to them, right? Because they feel that close to you. Can you relate to the anguish in David's cry, this anguish that almost says, how could you? We were covenanted together. We were friends and you have betrayed me. When I was a pastor in the U.S., I had the the grave responsibility of shepherding our congregation through several uh, very difficult church discipline situations. And two cases uh, come to mind in particular that that were uh, very, very taxing for me at a personal level for a number of reasons. Uh, For one reason is is that they happened right after one another. It was back-to-back within a number of months. And so it was... Uh, out of the fire and into the, firing, into the frying pan. It was just, you know, one thing after another. The other reason why it was so difficult is because of the gravity of the, of the sin that occasioned church discipline. Both cases were, uh, were unrepentant, abusive uh, husbands. And so it was just a very, very grave kind of uh, uh, difficulty, grave betrayal for their wives. But what really made the situation almost unbearable for me at the, at the personal level as a pastor was my closeness to these men. I considered them both to be dear friends. And so when I think about uh, those situations, I can sympathize with David's unbelief here. This sort of, no, it can't be, not this person. It cannot be this person. We were friends. We worshiped together. We've prayed together. We've sung together. We've confessed sins together. We also, as, as pastors, we had the, the grave responsibility of, of walking through uh, situations of marital unfaithfulness. I know that that's probably not a foreign concept here in this congregation. This is a big enough church that that has a, is a sting that uh, some of you perhaps have felt. Perhaps some of you have inflicted that sting on somebody. I think that that kind of unfaithfulness is, is the hardest, rawest, probably most crushing experience of betrayal that a person can even experience in this life. So it's rough to discover that such a a person, such deception and such manipulation is capable of somebody so loved and so trusted. It's, It's a disorienting experience. And you can hear the disorientation in David's cry here. It's utter unbelief. No, it can't be this person. What do you do in the face of such heartache? Well, at the very least, you pray. You pray like David. You pray, you cry out to God in, in, a, in a desperate, fervent begging. You beg him to bring about repentance. You beg God to sustain you through a season that you don't think you have the capacity to endure. You beg him for his wisdom and his intervention. You beg, you beg him. And you don't stop begging him until he, until he intervenes. I think David models this kind of prayerful begging for us. Look at v- verse 16 with me. He says, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage from many For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. And he who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. Notice how David is here preaching to himself. He's he's preaching in the face of his own unbelief. 
In the face of his enemies and great opposition, he stubbornly refuses to let up from his pursuit of God for deliverance. And it's as if he's saying, regardless of what they do to me, I will pursue God. I will keep pursuing God. Why? Because he is this kind of God. He is the kind of God who hears the prayers of the humble. He is the kind of God who brings low the prideful. He is the kind of God who remembers his saints. As we saw last week with Psalms 20, uh, 42 and, and 43, David, he doesn't, he doesn't only complain, he doesn't only listen to himself and the woes of his heart. He does do that, but he doesn't only do that. He also talks back to his heart. He preaches to himself. I mean, who else is he talking to but himself in verse 22? Look at verse 22 with me. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. Cast your burden on the Lord, self, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He says to himself, remember, self, what kind of God you serve. Don't forget about who this God is in this season of sorrow and hardship. Now, notice also, lastly, about this psalm. David does not simply complain to God about his enemies, and he doesn't simply preach to himself. He also prays very specifically for the downfall of his enemies. I wonder if this kind of thing rubs you the wrong way. Look at at verse 15 with me. He says, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their own dwelling place and in their hearts. Skip down to verse 23, the last verse of the psalm. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Now, that's not even the most graphic of examples in the psalms. There are many more psalms that get much more violent and their imprecatory nature. We call these imprecatory psalms, where David is, the psalmist is asking for God to intervene and to judge and to punish and to destroy the enemy. What are we to do with such sentiment in the psalms? How how should we treat them? Well, one response, the wrong one, is to simply say that David was sinful in his imprecatory cries and that we should view these uh, words as a sort of cautionary tale, a a lesson uh, for how not to pray. Now, I I love C.S. Lewis. I love him. I love so much of his writings. I've named my my third child after him, so I love the writings of C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis falls into this error. He says that David, in his his prayers, is giving us an example of how not to pray when he prays these imprecatory psalms. Now, I love Lewis, but he's wrong. He knows he's wrong now. But for those of us who affirm the inerrancy of Scripture... Such a conclusion is unacceptable, right? Because we trust that God inspired these words. He intends for us to pray them and for us to sing them. The Psalter is God's hymnal. He wants for us to sing these psalms. We sing these psalms here at ECC. I wonder if if it feels odd for some of you to sing psalms of, of imprecatory prayers. But God wants us to. He inspired these words for us. So how should we understand them as Christians? Now, the most important thing I can emphasize here is that David is not seeking vengeance. He's not seeking personal vengeance. If he were, he wouldn't be coming to God at all. He'd be reaching for his sword. So no, David is not seeking personal vengeance. He's asking God for justice. 
And he doesn't try to take it into his own hands. He brings his case to God. You see, the most fundamental fact about imprecatory psalms like this, the most fundamental fact is that they are an acknowledgement that God alone is fit to bring about absolute justice, not the psalmist. David is bringing his prayers, his request, to the God who is capable of making such judicious calls because he knows he isn't. He's acknowledging that God is fit to bring about ultimate justice, and so he does. And his prayer communicates essentially, God, don't let injustice reign. Don't let wickedness go unpunished. Don't let evil get away with it. And this is a righteous longing. This is a righteous longing. We should long for no evil to go unpunished. David does not want vengeance. He wants justice. And yet, as David is praying this prayer, justice has not yet come. And so in all of the uncertainty of his circumstances, David intends to resolve his prayer in this way. But I will trust in you. Regardless of what they do, I will trust in you. He brings all of these requests to God, and he leaves the matter with God. David has wrestled his emotions into the presence of God and has sort of tired himself out, so to speak. And so exhausted, he collapses into the presence of God, resolving to rest in his trustworthiness. Now, what I want to know is, is that all there is to say about this psalm? Or is there more to say in light of Christ and his finished work? I think the answer is yes. You see, I, I think that Christ, as the light of the world, as the light of God, when he came, he cast a brilliant light of clarity all over the Old Testament to show his own glory in places that Old Testament saints could not have seen. Now, it's not as if his arrival changes the meaning of any of these passages, but he reveals a depth that we would otherwise be ignorant of. He reveals a depth to these passages. Now, this is important to say because everything that I've said about this psalm so far is something that, uh, that a, a Jew today could say about this psalm, a practicing Jew. Or it's something that any Old Testament believer before the time of Christ could have said. So is there a Christian way to read this psalm? I think the, the answer is yes. You see, I think for, for a number of reasons. One reason is that Christ resolves a tension created in the Psalter itself, in all of the psalms. There's a tension in the psalms. Consider, first of all, how God's salvation in Christ brings about final and ultimate absolute justice in a way that David and every other Old Testament saint could not have ever known exactly how it would work out. You see, in this psalm, David wants for God to bring justice by punishing the sins of his enemies. But what about his own sins? What about David's own sins? After all, David himself was not a perfect man. And elsewhere in the Psalms, for example, David says things like this in Psalm 19. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. How can David ask that? How is that just? Right? How, how could God be just in declaring David innocent for his faults while not letting go of the faults of his enemies? On the one hand... All of David's hopes in this psalm are hung on the assurance that God is a God of justice who does not allow for evil to go unpunished. But on the other hand, David himself is not devoid of evil. He himself has evil in his own heart. 
And he wants to be spared to pun- the punishment of his own sins. So how do we reconcile this? How can God remain just, which requires for him to punish evil, while showing mercy to people like David, who themselves have evil in their hearts? David didn't have a clear answer to this question. <clears throat> he looked by faith to God, and he trusted that God would resolve this dilemma somehow. So he prays things like, declare me innocent from hidden faults. We know how he does it. <laughs> Those of us who live after the time of Christ, we know that God, how he does it. God vindicates his justice in forgiving sinners like David through Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul tells us about in Romans chapter 3. He says, but now the righteousness of God, in other words, the vindication of God's justness, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul goes on to say that in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, sins like David's. He passed over former sins, not so that he could forget about them forever, but it was to show his righteousness at the present time. That is, now that Christ has come, so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, David's sins were passed over temporarily, but they couldn't be passed over forever. They had to be punished eventually, somehow. Otherwise, God would be subject to criticism for being unjust, for allowing sin to go unpunished. David did not know how God would justly condemn all wickedness while also justifying wicked people like himself. He didn't know how God would do it, but he took confidence that the God of his salvation would do it somehow. And we know how God has done it, how God remains just in condemning all sin and the justifier in redeeming sinners. He does it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our only hope. We should should find no comfort in a God who lets any sin go unpunished. Sin must be punished. It must. And all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. That's the plight that all of us are born into. That's the dilemma that that comes out in such an existential way in the Psalms, that there is this dilemma that God has to punish evil, and yet even the psalmists themselves have evil in their hearts. But the good news, the good news that David trusted would come, though he didn't know exactly how, the good news is that God did not leave us in such a desperate situation. In the fullness of time, God the Trinity acted on our behalf to redeem us from this dilemma, to redeem us from the guilt and the power of sin. He did this when the Father, the first person of the Trinity, sent the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, without ceasing to be God, to become man, to take upon himself a nature like ours, a nature that could suffer, a nature that could die and bear the condemnation of our guilt, though he himself had none. And he did this. He did this for us. He lived the perfect life of righteousness that you and I could never live. In other words, the kind of life that deserves favor from God and everlasting life. He actually earned that kind of life. He lived the kind of life that merited favor from God and everlasting life. And he does that for us. And he also suffered the consequences of sin to the point of death, the death that you and I deserve to die. 
And he was raised from the dead. He blazed a trail out of the grave for those of us to follow if we would but trust in him. And he ascended back up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. We read about this in the, in the Apostles' Creed this morning. From where he would send the Holy Spirit to apply all of this redeeming and atoning work to his saints. And so when we cling to Christ by faith, we are united to him by his Holy Spirit such that Christ's perfect life of righteousness becomes our perfect life of righteousness, such that Christ's death becomes our death, such that Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection. And thus the triune God acted to redeem us. He saves us as the Father who sends, the Son who is sent, and the Holy Spirit who is poured out. And this means, this means that imprecatory psalms like this one take on a whole new shape for us because of because the fundamental dilemma of the Psalms is resolved in Christ. You see, it's right for us, it's right for us to long for God to punish evil. And the cross of Jesus Christ assures us of this glorious truth, that no sin shall ever go unpunished. It assures us that God is loving and has mercy upon sinners, and no sin shall ever go unpunished. Every sin ever committed will receive its just wrath, either in hell for eternity or at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the blessed assurance of the Christian is not that God looks the other way and ignores our sin. That would not be a comfort. That is not your assurance. Your assurance, the comfort that you should take, is not that God ignores your sins. That's not the point. The blessed assurance of the Christian is that all of our sins are punished in Christ on the cross. And so when Satan accuses us, when Satan says, hey, you deserve to die because of your sin. You deserve to die because of your sin. There's a real sense in which we can say, I have. I've been crucified with Christ. In Christ Jesus, I have died to my sin. I've been crucified with Christ, and now it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, does he deserve condemnation, Satan? Hmm? Does Christ deserve condemnation? Does he deserve hell? Yeah, I didn't think so. I get what he gets. I get the eternal life that he gets. I have died for my sin in him, and now I live his life. I get righteousness and eternal life, so buzz off, Satan. We can say that. And if I could just speak to the unbeliever who is here with us this morning... I'm sure there's at least somebody in a room this, art, <clears throat> this large who's not yet trusting in Christ. And I just want to say I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you've, you've come and that you've come to, to see uh, what it is that Christians believe, what it is that we do on, on this day that we call the Lord's Day. And my question for you is, do you have an answer to such accusations, to the accusation that you deserve death and hell because of your sins? And you can be assured of this. Your sins will not be let off the hook. They will be punished. All of them, every one of them, they will be punished. Either you will be punished for them in hell or Christ will be punished for them, for you, if you would trust in him by faith. You don't have the option of having your sins ignored. You can ignore your sins, which is deadly, because God does not ignore your sins. Your 
option is either to be punished for your sins everlastingly or to let Christ be punished for you. So you don't have to. So won't you trust in him by faith? I mean, if you come to him with the empty hands of faith, he will give you himself and all the blessings that are entailed by that reality. And if you have any questions about what it looks like to become a Christian, to put your faith in Christ, to receive his atoning work on your behalf, then I would just invite you to ask any of the Christians who are here with you this morning. We would love, we would love to tell you about what it might look like to become a Christian. We would love to introduce you to our friend, Jesus Christ. All of this means, dear Christian, that we can actually pray imprecatory psalms evangelistically. What? How does that work? How can we pray imprecatory psalms evangelistically? We can pray these psalms in a way that David could never have dreamed of. We can actually say things like, punish, O God, this evil. Punish this evil. Punish all of it. Pour out your wrath on all of this evil. We can even say, God, may these people die on account of this wickedness. But by your grace, may they die in Christ. May they die in Christ so that in Christ they might be resurrected to walk as a new person, remade and restored. God, put this person to death and then raise them up to be a new person. Raise them up to walk in newness of life. Lastly, in closing, I think that we would have to be blind not to see the heartbreaking reality of this psalm's insight into the mind of Christ himself. This is a breathtaking reality. I think that Christ speaks to us through this psalm. Christ speaks to us through this psalm. He addresses us through this psalm. For though David wrote these words with Saul's face in his mind's eye, our Lord could pray them with Judas's or with Peter's face in his mind's eye or any one of us who have betrayed him. Right? Can't you just hear the voice of Christ in verse 13? Look at verse 13. But it's you, Judas, it's you, Peter, a man, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. You watched me multiply fish and bread to feed 5,000 and then 4,000. You saw me walk on water. You saw me heal the sick. You saw me raise the dead and cast out demons. And yet, Peter, you've denied me three times. Judas, You've stretched out your hand against your friend. You violated your covenant. Your speech was smooth as butter when you came and said, greetings, rabbi. But war was in your heart. You see, Jesus experienced the greatest betrayal in his pursuit to redeem us. He has walked the road of this fallen world that we walk on. And he has experienced the kind of betrayal that we experience on his way to redeem us. And he, therefore, is a sympathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses. And thus, with these examples of Judas and Peter, Christ shows himself to be the hope for both the betrayed and the betrayer. So for those of you who have experienced betrayal, for those of you who have been betrayed, you have a Christ who has felt the betraying kiss of Judas and has heard the betraying cursing of Peter. He has experienced betrayal. And he did this to become a sympathetic high priest. Not for his own benefit, but for yours. Right? It's not as if 
the second person of the Trinity in his divine glory said, you know, I don't really know what it's like to suffer, so I should take on a, a human nature that's capable of suffering so that I can sort of uh, feel with the people. You know, I need to be able to identify with them. I need to come down from my lofty place so I can understand, uh, so I can understand them. That's not what's going on in the incarnation. God, God is not meeting any deficiency in himself in the incarnation. He's, he is omniscient. He knows everything, including what it's like for us to suffer. He is full of compassion. So he's not meeting any deficiency. He's not doing anything for his own sake when he becomes incarnate, which means it is purely free for us. He gains nothing by becoming a sympathetic high priest for us, but we gain a sympathetic high priest. We gain a high priest for us. It wasn't for his sake that he took on flesh. It was for ours. And so by taking on a nature of flesh that could experience betrayal, we have gained a sympathetic high priest so that we can pour out our complaints to him with an assurance that he understands and truly sympathizes. He truly understood before, but now he has given us this gift of his intercession, of his priestly intercession, so that we have the comfort that he does. He, he does know exactly what it is we're dealing with. He can truly say, I have experienced this level of heartbreak. So go to him. Those of you who have been betrayed with your wounded hearts so that he can mend you. And he will. He can mend you. And for those of you who have been the betrayer, you should know that you have a, a, a Christ who delights to restore scoundrels and to redeem them and transform them into saints. Peter was in a state of disgrace and shame when he betrayed Christ, but he didn't stay in that state forever. His Lord, the victim of his betrayal, restored him. And that same Lord can restore you too. He can mend what you have broken with your betrayal. He will mend what you have broken in your betrayal. In your heart, in this life, at the very least, but in the end, he will mend all broken things. So you go to him. Go to him to receive his mending. He can compassionately restore you without any caveat or qualification back into full fellowship with him. Jesus gives forgiveness without strings attached. He holds no grudges. He is the hope for those who have betrayed and those who have been betrayed. He is the hope for the perpetrator and for the victim. He is the hope for, he is the hope to account for sins that you've committed and he is the hope to restore you when you have had sins committed against you. Don't you just love him? <laughs> Isn't Christ's heart not irresistibly beautiful as it shines forth from this psalm, Psalm 55? Brothers and sisters, this is your Jesus. So I invite you to adore him this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that in the fullness of time, you did not stand afar off, indifferent and aloof to our plight, but you have come near to us. We thank you that in you we have a sympathetic high priest who understands at the human level, the heartbreak of betrayal. And I pray 
for any brothers and sisters here this morning who have the sting of betrayal, who have been betrayed by others, would you heal them? Lord, would you, the great physician, administer uh, a balm and healing? Would you anoint them and heal them from the heartache? And just be near them. Remind them how much you love them and how uh, you will make all sad things come untrue, that you will make all things new. And Lord, for those who have been the betrayer, who feel the sting of conviction, those that need to be drawn, uh, that, that need to draw near in repentance, I pray that they would. I pray that they would uh, draw near to, to repentance and confession to you without any fear of what would happen as a result because uh, you are trustworthy and you can mend what has been broken by betrayal. Uh, but for those who have come to you and, and are tempted now to feel a shame afresh, I pray that you would remind them of your grace Remind them of your love for them. I pray that they would experience the same kind of restoring grace and restoring love that Peter experienced when you restored him into ministry. Lord, you are, you are good, and you don't leave us to suffer alone in our sins. You draw near to us, and so I pray that you would do that in all the countless ways uh, that are needed in this congregation this morning. Would you build up this church the way that you see fit for your glory and our joy. We pray all of this uh, to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.